Welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast, where you can learn from entrepreneurs and investors who are driving progress in healthcare and life science across the globe. I'm your host, Joe Schunkweiler, a physician and former health tech executive now supporting startups and investors at Amazon Web Services. Today, I'm speaking with Amahai Niederman. Amahai is the CEO and founder of NIM, a company leveraging clinical language understanding to enable automated, efficient, and transparent revenue cycle management. He shares his insights on the advantages of coming into healthcare technology as an outsider and how to build trust with customers as a way to cut through healthcare's interminable sales cycles. Enjoy. Amahai Niederman, CEO and founder of NIM. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me, Joe. I'd love to start by uh, a, a walk through your background and your journey to being a, a CEO and founder. Um, sure. So uh, I'm an engineer by training. Um, started my uh, my way into computer science um, pretty early. I started my bachelor in math computer science when I was 14. Wow. Uh, well. Yeah, well, still doing, uh, still going to high school at the same time. Gave me the opportunity to major in history in high school, which was uh, great fun. Um, after finishing the university, uh, got drafted to the Israeli army, as you probably know. Mm-hmm. In Israel, we all, I'm from Israel, you could probably guess by the name. Um, we, we all have a mandatory army service of three years. Got drafted to a unit called 8200, which is kind of our equivalent to the NSA. Um, and got pulled in there mostly because of my computer science and math background and ended up spending about 10 years over there doing uh, computer science research, uh, cybersecurity work, uh, crypto analysis, which was a whole great of fun. Ended up going to the officer training school and um, left the, the army uh, at the major rank at the end. And just after, just sorry, before I, I left the, the army, I actually married my girlfriend at the time. Now she's my wife, who is uh, she's an MD, PhD. And I, I remember she told me a little bit about the research she's doing. She's an ENT surgeon. And that's how I got kind of the first exposure into um, healthcare and the fact that I want to do something in that space. Wow. 10 years. That's a long time. Is that a long military uh, uh tenure relative to your peers that was long usually the the average uh, or what you're required to do is three years okay but it was a whole grade of fun my, my unit was um i know it sounds weird uh to describe the army in this way but i got to work with some of the smartest people probably in the world that were working with us or serving maybe that's the, the better term um, a lot of them i was lucky enough uh, after i left the army and after they uh, left to uh, recruit them to work for us at NIM. So, so take me from this, this deep tech, cryptography, all that world, um, this medical spark via your your partner at the time, and, and now your now your spouse. Um, how how did that get you to NIM? Like, how did NIM grow out of that? So you know, my probably the. If you look at my background, which is what we just talked about, kind of the obvious uh, path was uh, staying in cybersecurity. I had a great career uh, as a researcher, uh, got to publish a lot of my research, even got to present a lot of it in international conferences. It was like a whole year when I literally just traveled the world from Japan, Korea, 
uh, States, Canada, Romania, Poland, you name it, Finland in November. And just talking about my research in cybersecurity, but um, when I kind of got excited when I remember my wife, when she was working on her research, uh, she told me how she actually does and perform her research. And it involves so much manual work initially, because when you're doing research, you know this, you're, you're a physician mm -hmm. too. When you're doing your clinical research, sometimes you have to go through thousand medical records in order to find like a handful of candidates to perform your research on. Now, usually it's a, it's a big problem in every EMR system, every major hospital, even the academic ones, but it's very hard to actually query or search over the data mm -hmm. because of HIPAA, because of all kinds of other restrictions, the technology just isn't there, the quality is bad. And when my wife described to me the work she has to do going over a thousand medical records, one by one, took her hours and days. I remember she disappeared for days at a time. It sounds so weird to me because I'm used to, especially for my place in the army, that if you can automate something, you automate it. Like literally the first computer in Israel was built in the basement of the building I was serving in. So I was very used to automating things and not doing a lot of manual work. And I remember I, we got this kind of a quasi approval from um, uh, my wife's hospital from our head department and we, and I built what I call the a Portsman NLP solution, natural language processing right. uh, solution. Just, just took me a little bit more than a weekend to build and it just worked amazingly well. My wife was the youngest resident at the time in her department. They have this big ENT conference every year here in Israel. And usually the really good residents that's been doing the residency for like five years, been to this conference a couple of times, they have like, I don't know, one talk, one talk, one poster. And my wife, that was her first time, had two talks, three posters, even got voted best talk of the conference. And I got really excited about health because I saw how the stuff I did for her that I kind of took for granted uh, because of that's what I did for the past decade before I left the army. That's what we did. Um, I, I kind of took for granted this kind of approach. Got really excited that I can take my experience and my passion doing things with technology into a field that seems to be in real need of um of this kind of technology and approach now you probably know even better than me that there are tons of companies trying to do this kind of edge technology in healthcare like there are a ton of ai companies but what i was mostly missing is the the approach technology that's mm -hmm. the thing that i'm really uh, used to trying to do rapid prototyping, see if something works. If it doesn't, just right away. If it does, awesome. You do it over it. Mm -hmm. And you're getting better and better results all the time. You can get early traction very, uh, very early. But that's a big problem in healthcare because if you screw something up in healthcare, uh, people could die or get hurt. And that's how I kind of landed on the, the world of revenue cycle management. This entire process, the back-end process of how providers, the hospitals, the health systems, the physician groups are uh, working in order to get reimbursed by the insurance companies. So it's, it's, a, it's an entire space where you have to go and, and actually understand the medical charts, get to the same level of understanding as you will have to in the clinical side, but you don't face the risk that if you make a mistake, somebody will die. The, the course of treatment of a patient will change because of your results. So I end up with my co-founder, Adam, um, kind of landing on the world of uh, medical coding. 
uh, which is what we're doing today uh, at NIM. Right. That's um, and and I know that um, the medical coding billing space is you know ripe for disruption. It's a really clunky process. Um, every code on every claim touches multiple individuals as it like snakes its way from the provider through the payer, whoever that payer is. How did you, how did you approach that in uh, really dissecting that process? Like what did your early uh, uh, discovery look like? Because, um, you know, clearly you are a seasoned technologist and you had that view of the world. But there are lots of folks that spend their whole careers in the U.S. healthcare system that know little to nothing about the pathway of um, claims and codes and are happy to do that. They're blessedly ignorant of that pathway. So how did you how did you approach that problem uh, and 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 bake that into the the product? No, you're absolutely right. Um, I think that we came uh, to this problem from a very technological uh, approach. We're trying, we're trying to identify the market and trying to understand why people fail because people have been trying to automate coding. But what we're doing is we're automating the coding process. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of companies, like all, all the big names in the healthcare IT space that uh, you, you probably heard all those names for, they all try to automate coding for the past 20 years. And almost all the companies, actually all the companies who try to approach this have failed in doing this. And the reason that we identified that most of those companies failed was from choosing the wrong kind of technology. Mm-hmm. A, lot of, a lot of those companies, all of those companies almost, try to take off-the-shelf NLP technology that is always based in machine and deep learning, which are great approaches, but suffers from two main problems. Like One of them is that it's extremely hard to a point that right now nobody managed to do it to train a model be accurate enough. To a point if you feel comfortable as a provider, sending out a claim that was auto-generated to the pairs and actually standing by your results. And you know the downside if you over-coded or even under-coded. Right. In the eyes of the pairs, this could be considered as a fraud and you can end up in jail paying huge fines. And the other problem was that even if you did manage to train a model that will be accurate enough, both machine deep learning, they're what we call statistical nature, essentially black box. So even if you could train the, the, a model be extremely accurate to, this, to the level that you feel comfortable with the results. If the pairs ask you why you're asking for, for $20,000 for a specific claim and your only explanation is something lines of, well, I don't know, the computer told me so, it usually doesn't fly mm-hmm. with them. This is what they call non-compliant revenue. And then they use that as a, as a real reason or excuse to delay payment, deny payment, just to audit the, the providers until they get a reasonable explanation to why something was built in a certain way. And when we started the company, we were very focused on the core technology of actually solving for that specific problem, um, that barrier of explainability and, and accuracy that was there for the past 20 or so years, even longer than that. And we took a whole different approach. Uh, we took an approach called computational linguistics. Adam, my co-founder and our CTO, he's a computational linguist. And almost all of our early employees are computational linguists too. And this is... A, it's a, fundamentally different approach into language understanding. Something that was mostly, was researched in the academia in the last 70 something years, um, even predates computer science in a way. And basically what we're trying to do is recreate the process that we as human go through when we're trying, when we're reading or just having an everyday conversation, trying to understand what's kind of the process that goes in our brain or the algorithm that that we have in our brain 
when we understand a language. Now, a lot of people try to implement this in a real world solution and product, but and fail because it's extremely hard to do this on just an everyday conversation because you have to be able to apply real world knowledge, like all the current events. You have to be able mm-hmm. to read between the lines because a lot of our conversations, people is uh, nonverbal. Right. And, but when you look at physician charts, those charts are meant for other physicians, other providers to read. And if you have things like subtext, sarcasm, questions, question sentences, like you force the, the other physician that will be reading that, those notes in 10 years from now, you, you force that person to guess now what happened to the patient. Then, well, one physician can understand one thing, another could understand something completely different, and it could harm the patient. So the way physicians usually write their notes, it looks like a very laconic language, but it's actually a very shell language from a linguistic perspective. And on that kind of language, you can, and that's what we did for the first basically two, two and a half years in the company, build a computational linguistic model that works. And what we're getting returned is extremely high accuracy in our coding. We see like more than 98% accuracy actually uh, across the board. And the other thing is because we are not using anything that is statistical, we can generate full audit trails. Like an, and to an explanation of our entire thought process. And we see that's something that gets a lot of our clients or uh, potential clients excited. And to your question about how we integrate you know, with, with the different workflows and how, uh, and all the different ways that providers are, are doing their coding or just managing their revenue cycle. Um, you know, well, like I said, we, we got to it initially from a very naive technological approach. And, uh, we're lucky enough that our early clients uh, were very excited about the early results that we're able to produce to them. The fact that they had the audit trails, like we could give them the explanation, they could go over them and tell us, you know, this is something that you missed, or you should be doing this differently. That's how we're doing this. And we got a lot of good early feedback from our early clients. And this really helped us uh, improve the product to a point now that when we're coming to a, a new client, we have this whole robust discovery uh, session. I remember one of our uh, board members, the first time I've met with, uh, with him, he told me, you have to remember, this is a workflow problem. And this is a person right. that spent the last 25 years in revenue cycle. Uh, great te- uh, uh, technologist, but built a really successful company in the revenue cycle space. Uh, and he told me, you have to remember, it's a workflow problem. Everything that a coder does, you'll have to be able to recreate this. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Right. And we're lucky that um, uh, we spent a lot of time building that core technology that is really robust. And I remember there were things that initially we didn't even know we had to do. Like we have to know what, pro- like who were in the room when mm-hmm. the patient got treated. Because you have to do, maybe you've heard that like yeah. our incident two. Yeah, incident to billing or having a supervising physician or supervising, yeah, physician in the room kind of thing. Exactly. And you have to know how to split it, to know who did what, when, what was their part. And that's a, that's a really complex thing. Now, it's kind of outside the realm of a coder, but that's what coders do. It's mm-hmm. part of their, their work. It's part of the workflow. And if you can't do this, that's a big problem. And we're lucky enough that, you know, when we encounter that problem, that we build a very robust technology around language understanding, what we call clinical language understanding, that we're just able to tweak it and we were able to deploy that kind of feature or almost a product by itself very quickly. Most of the the technologies that I 
interact with, um, not most, but many, I should say, um, it's not it's not the underlying tech. It's actually the implementation and uptake of it that is the challenge for folks. Like the the tech often, and a lot of founders would say this is not. It's things that have been around for a long time in other in other uh, disciplines and verticals that are now just making their way into healthcare. And the real challenge is getting people to do it, the behavior change piece. But it sounds like, based on what I know about the billing coding process, which in some ways is probably too much from my uh, previous experience, um, but that the tech was a big piece of this. Like actually having tech with the um, accuracy and the fidelity to the underlying documentation and getting that high yield throughput on the, the claims workflow and the codes that drop on the claims and the claims to the payer, um, that was a big part of it. Now, take me through to that implementation side. So is it, do you find that you get most of the way there by proving that you have um, very strong technology or do you feel like then that's half of the race getting towards the implementation and operational aspect? within these systems? Well, I want to say it's half of the race. It's probably uh, a little bit more than this. The technology itself, um, again, that was a major barrier for a very long time. You, you're going to meet with a client and we often, well, we got to hear a lot initially that it sounds too good to be true. There's no mm -hmm. way you'll be able to get this kind of accuracy. We've heard that pitch before. Other companies pitched that to us. There was the promise of what was called CAC or computer-assisted coding in the past, and it never worked. Why is that different? So first of all, talking about the core technology, what we did, how we approached this, showing them some of our historical results uh, gives our clients a lot of confidence to move forward. Also, you know, we, we had to say in the beginning, well, we're, uh, we're very bullish about what we built um, and believe in our ability to succeed and help you as a client uh, to be more successful. So we're gonna offer you a, a free pilot. We're gonna, we're gonna learn all about your different SOPs, your standard operating procedures, like how you're doing your, your thing in coding. We're gonna adjust all of this, make sure that we tweak our engine or at least configure it to your needs. And we're gonna do it on, on our own expense. I'm gonna show you how we're doing this. And then we're gonna help them build trust in our results. And I'm just like we had about a couple of weeks ago, um, I was doing a podcast with the CFO of Geisinger, which is a very large client of ours. And you could hear how they're talking about our results. It's been a very lengthy process to get to this point. But now you can hear uh, people at the C-level that even know the impact that we bring to their organization. Did you have any concern um, on getting caught in a you know, death by pilot spiral um, because I think that's a big question for a lot of founders in the space, particularly in when you're entering into these interminable sales cycles. You know, I ran a company that was selling into academic medical centers, even at the department level. And the sales cycles are just unbelievably brutal. And that's, you know, it's one of these things that is a, it seems like it's overdone when you talk about it, but it's a true thing. Like you get caught in these really long sales cycles. Were you able to cut through that or did you feel like you had, you needed that validation step to then accelerate when you could? It was like a necessary buildup. Um, and there's a bit of a domino effect too, you know, where um, 
health systems, hospitals are fast followers. And when things seem to work, particularly in the rev cycle space, it feels like because there is a clear ROI that they can bring to their purchasing committees and boards, et cetera. Um, was that, did you, did you pause at all on the pilot strategy? Because I think that's a really interesting uh, perspective going into this. That's probably the first thing that uh, when you talk with investors, especially the ones that have healthcare experience, that they raise a concern, like how you avoid the death by pilots, especially if you work with the very large health systems, some of them can drag you for years. You can run mm -hmm. out of cash before you even go live with them to start a pilot. And the way that we try to approach this, we knew it's kind of a, I don't wanna say necessary evil, but we knew that we had to do this first of all, to understand better on what's the product we're gonna build, how we're gonna build this. Um, and be because we, we knew that we're, we're very confident in building the core technology, everything around the, the actual product that's gonna use the core technology, this is where we need some more external, uh, not validation, but inputs. Mm -hmm. So we try to mix this both with um, having pilots with different kinds of organizations and also going live with, with, with either smaller groups or with revenue cycle companies. We're trying to sell, we, we diversify the type of clients that we have. So we're not selling just to the large clinic medical centers or the large physician groups. We're also working with uh, revenue cycle companies. Now with them, actually they can move um, slightly faster than the traditional uh, health systems. Yeah, it's a low bar. It's <laughs> right. You know, if you get a, an eight month sales cycle, you're like, wow, we really cut it. <laughs> we really cut into that, that cycle. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm really, um, I think that makes, you know, that's a great way to, to think through it. I, I, I think there's gonna be a lot of folks that are interested in learning and, and thinking yeah. through that, um, that approach for these, these types of customers. Yeah. But like you said, it's uh there's a kind of a follower mentality. So once you mm -hmm. manage close and actually go live with a few uh, blue chip clients, the ones that others are looking at, like the big health systems, uh, the one with large volume, the one really care about the quality. Um, some of it uh, kind of spreads word to mouth. Like we, we had people mm -hmm. uh, calling us saying, hey, we heard you, go, you went live with our competitors in the States. We want that too. Right. Can you, can you demo us what you're doing? And this happened more than once. And now we're starting to see that the sales cycle is getting better and better. It's getting shortened. Um, if in the past we had to do a pilot to prove our, our war for the fact that it's working, now we have clients that are referenceable mm -hmm. um, and I will go on the record and talk with potential new clients and tell them about the experience of working with us. The onboarding experience is very important. So we will try to improve our onboarding experience from investing in customer success like putting the best representative in front of the clients. And, and I think we did a, a, a fairly good job at this in, in the last year and a half since we started becoming more commercial. And we, we already started seeing the results from shortened sales cycles, not needing to, to do pilots, uh, which is a great thing. One of the things that I'm fascinated by as I talk to, to founders and, and investors and others across the industry is there's sort of a duality. There are folks that come into this with very deep clinical or healthcare experience and then try to see, uh, try to attack these challenges in new ways. 
which has its positives and negatives. You know, I, like if I, you know, could be so bold as to call myself sort of an insider, there are lots of things where there's a way that I think about a problem that would be really hard to think about it differently and tackle it that way. And that may be the right way or a right way to do it in a more efficient or better, or cheaper, or whatever that is, a, a way that, to move the ball forward kind of thing. Um, what are some of the advantages that you found coming at this, not from inside those uh, <laughs> castle walls? You know, like you're coming out of it with a deep technology background with this experience in, you know, solving hard challenges with technologies, what it, what it sounds like from what you said, but like, what are some of those things that were advantages to you that you felt um, seeing these problems with new eyes and, and finding novel solutions to them that have made, um, it allowed you to, to progress so quickly at NIM? Well, the, probably the best thing was that we didn't have any, um, I always say hypothesis about how things are, are done or should mm -hmm. be done. We, we looked at the problem and tried to think what's the best way to solve it. And we didn't have any conceptions about how it, how it should be done. Because none of us when we started a company was any, uh, weren't any coding experts. Actually, we only hired for a company that processed, I think I just saw, processing a little bit more than 3 million charts a year now and going to even double this number next year. We only hired our first ever coder into the company less than six months ago. Right. So we're managing a pretty robust coding operation here with nobody with coding uh, experience. And what we did that actually worked really well in our favor is we thought, well, who could be the best person to learn about coding and tell us how it should be done? Well, it's physicians. So we started hiring physicians um, with computer science background also kind of saved us uh, the trouble of having uh, a proc person in, in the <laughs> middle. And we, we, we brought physicians. We found it's just easier to teach physicians how to do coding mm -hmm. um, than find a coder who will teach us how to do coding, uh, teach our proc people, then mm -hmm. you have to explain to developers. Let's just take the best physicians we can find, teach them how to do coding and throw them into the R&D and see how that works. So, when you see a lot of companies trying to do it, they had like to do what we're doing, automate coding or doing computer coding, they always used to say by coders for coders. Mm -hmm. And we didn't have any of those preconceptions about how things should be done. We just put smart people in the room that looked at the problem and thought, what's the best way to solve it? Right. So yeah. a, lot of, a lot of times it works in our favor. Sometimes um, we could find ourselves asking dumb questions. Uh, the good thing is, uh, again, that we found our, we were very focused on who's going to be our first clients. And they were very helpful answering those dumb questions and guiding us on how we should actually do things too. Yeah. And I, my, my experience within healthcare, um, certainly on the clinical side is sometimes you don't ask enough dumb questions, you know, and you make, then you get baked assumptions and hypotheses that may be slightly off. You see it all the time in clinical decision-making, but it's, it's, I'm sure just as true on the administ administrative side as well. Um, and, you know, what I'm hearing from what you said was you didn't come in with it, with come into this process with any preconceived notions about this is how it's done, or this is how it's always done. And then that allowed you to think about the process in a, in a completely new way um, with a 
technological backbone to support um, your efforts. So um, yeah, hats off to you. That's it. It's a, I'm sure it's daunting um, to, to approach such an arcane space, even within healthcare, you know, even by the standards of healthcare. Um, taking a step back for just a second, as we, as we near the end here, what advice do you give to founders looking, uh, looking to break into the health tech space? Particularly, and I love this through the lens of being, you know, not based in the U.S., taking this global view of uh, building a team between two countries who are really going after a, a challenging, highly regulated, long sale cycles, all the things we've been talking about. Um, if I was coming to you as a potential founder, what would you, what would you say to me? Well, the first thing I always tell people um, and I said with friends and you know, I'm, I'm at the age where people starting to get married or having kids and they always ask me, is that, is that the right time? And at least the, the first advice I always give is there isn't a right time. I don't think there is a right time to do something. Like if you're passionate about doing something, you found a problem that you're really passionate about, about you want to solve that problem, there isn't a good time. You should just go for it. And I'm also not in favor of uh, over planning. I mean, just like we found, we saw with um, with Nim is you start something, you think you you have a set of problems you want that you need to solve. So you hire people that can solve for those problems. But after you solve those problems, now you have a whole new uh, list of problems that you never anticipate. Just because now you understand more, you get more traction, you're seeing different type of clients. Um, now you're starting to sell. So you're facing whole new uh, types of problems. And sometimes you don't know how to plan for it. And so you can try plan to think about it in advance. But I think as, even if you'll try to plan too much, you'll never find all of those problems. So kind of what we did and what I always tell people, and that's something that we actually learned in the Army, um, is to hire people that can just solve the problems you have right now. They can also solve the problems you have no idea what they're gonna be in a year or two from now. And we, we found this model is very successful. Our first employee that we hired is still with the company, uh, solving a whole different kind of problems than we had to, uh, to solve in the beginning. And I think this is uh, maybe the best advice I, I could give when you're looking to hire people. Yeah, the early team building is something that I'm, uh, I, I always think about as well, having been through this cycle a few times that whether you hire for technical folks, you hire for all the skill sets you don't have, you know, finance or sales or whatever that is. Um, and I think taking a long-term view, which is something that we, we always think about um, at Amazon and AWS is great advice. And, uh, and I appreciate you taking some time today to to talk through your experience and what you're building at NIM. Uh, Amahai Niederman, CEO and founder of NIM, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Joe. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and rating. It helps others find us. To learn more about how AWS supports startups, please go to aws.amazon.com slash startups. <laughs>